It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am looking forward to talking with my guest today. Joining me is Nick Poulos. Nick is founder of Bowery Capital, which they call a thesis-driven, early-stage investor backing exceptional founders, modernizing business through technology. He's an active blogger as well as the host of a great podcast himself, Bowery Capital Sales Podcast. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of their guests they have. And Nick, welcome to Accelerate. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. So please take a minute, introduce yourself. How'd you get your start uh, in business? How'd you end up where you are? Certainly. Uh, so, as you mentioned, uh, today I am a venture investor with Bowery Capital. Uh, so, we are a VC uh, that focuses exclusively on enterprise software. So, predominantly SaaS, all businesses selling into the enterprise. I've been in venture capital now for about six years, uh, based out of New York. Prior to Bowery, uh, myself, as well as my colleague Mike, uh, served as the investment team for AOL Ventures, which is the VC arm of AOL, which I hope everyone is still familiar with. <laughs> and uh, You've got mail. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we did a few other things there outside of uh, that you've got mail recording and the ubiquitous CDs that I'm sure everyone has received over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually did a lot of ad tech there um, prior to my role in AOL Ventures served in a business development function primarily focused on the ad tech stack that AOL uh, began to build out and continues to build out uh, quite uh, robustly. Uh, And prior to that, uh, I spent several years in uh, investment banking focused on software M&A. So that's that's my career in a nutshell. In a nutshell. So what sort of attracted you to the SaaS space as an investor? I mean, you certainly had a choice of where you could have focused. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, to some extent, you know, you you develop certain expertise. You know, I began in software banking and did a lot of uh, a lot of ad technology, uh, which was kind of at the uh, height of its excitement uh, when I was in that career, and uh, you know, had had the chance to join AOL and uh, see a variety of enterprise technologies around advertising and marketing. Um, since then, obviously, I have gravitated towards SaaS. I think overall, enterprise is an extremely exciting space for somebody who enjoys understanding the latest technologies and how they can have an impact on you know, the way that modern business is done. Uh, if you think about uh, AI or Internet of Things and connected devices mm-hmm. or you know the cutting edge of mobile, uh, these are all things that multi-billion dollar companies with huge budgets want to put to work to have their impact on the economy. And so you see really some of the most interesting applications of these emerging technologies in the enterprise. Um, you know, I, I think obviously there are very cool things going on in, in the consumer world as well, but, um, you know, SaaS in particular, I think has been a real revolution. Uh, you've, you've gone over the course of 15 or so years from there being 
five major provisioners of IT to the enterprise to, uh, you know, now we have hundreds of new uh, cloud applications being created and sold in enterprise every year. It's cheaper and faster than ever to start these companies. And uh, you know, certainly cloud deployment is one reason. Another reason is cheaper, uh, cheaper cloud infrastructure and, and, and storage. Uh, but you know, I just think uh, it's also access. I mean, imagine how many tools that you can go out and find to help you do your job better for $10 a month or even free. Uh, it's, it's really just, it's been an amazing opportunity, not only for those IT buyers, uh, but for entrepreneurs and hence for investors like me. And I think one of the things that's, that's really happened over the last, in that same period that you talked of, over the last 15 years, let's say, is that, that the enterprise is much less concerned about a brand name in terms of buying a solution from a company. You know, or before, got to go back to days when I was working for startups and we were selling sort of mission-critical communications systems into very large corporations, uh, yeah, the biggest hurdle we had to pass, overcome initially, was no one knew who we were. Yep. And this reluctance to buy from sort of an unknown quantity. And it seems like that's diminished quite a bit. I mean, the perceived risk of dealing business with a company like that seems to have gone down. I think you're right. Um, you know, there's the old adage, you know, you don't get fired for buying IBM. Right, believe or, me, I was on the receiving end of that many times, <laughs> by the way. Just, just FYI. I mean, that used to be frustrating to the extreme where I'd go in thinking I'd closed a deal on somebody and they said, well, you know, we bought from IBM because, you know, sales rep said. <laughs> it's like, seriously? <laughs> yeah. I, and it's, it's, it's definitely still in effect. But yeah, I think you're right. You're seeing a lot of enterprises recognize that finding uh, earlier, more cutting-edge technologies that may mean that you're taking a little bit more risk uh, as the company doesn't maybe have as much operating history. Uh, but it's also a source of innovation for them. Uh, so you're, you're right. I think that's opening up, and it's been a real positive, I think, for the whole ecosystem. Yeah, and I think given the fact it's cloud-based, I mean, the, the cost of implementation and the cost of switching, if there is a mistake, are substantially lower than it was if a hosted solution, let's say, for a, a big enterprise software play. Exactly. Less implementation, hopefully less, uh, less upfront cost, and uh, the ability to have your product uh, you know, be continually upgraded uh, is, has really become a boon. Yeah, and that lower switching cost is a positive and a minus because you have to focus much more on making sure the customer actually drives the value from the investment they're getting. So, hence the rise of the customer success teams. Exactly. So, exactly. in one of your recent interviews with a guest um, from Gigya, you know, he had talked about how, and you, I think you concurred with this, is that you said sales is not an art. And I thought that was interesting. So, Certainly, the science of selling has has improved dramatically over the you know, past 10, 15 years, uh, the growth of the predictable revenue model and so on. But interesting question, because I get asked this a lot, is is, yeah, is there no room for craft or the art of sales anymore? And what's, what's the blend? Yeah, that's uh, it's a, a great question. You know, I think, you know, the, the podcast that I did with, with Ken, uh, Pouliot, who's the, the VP of sales over at Gigia, you know, we were talking about the proof of concept phase of a deal mm-hmm. where you, know, you don't have a full-time contract signed, but you're putting a product in a, a customer's hands. Uh, and his, the takeaway that, that I 
I got from him was if you don't have, if you don't set your milestones, if you don't have mutually agreed upon goals and commitments, if you don't have a set, you know, light at the end of the tunnel and you know when that's coming, you don't put all the structure around it. You're setting yourself up for scope creep. You're setting yourself up for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, pursuing uh, non-ideal customers. Uh, so I think in that regard, um, you know, extending that out to the entire sales funnel, sales, especially sales of technology products, <clears throat> excuse me, has become uh, much more systematized. We can extract a lot more data from the process in order to optimize it. Uh, there are tons of tools that can help you organize your data, get more data in your customers, um, qualify your leads better, et cetera. But to try to answer your question, I think that craft is never going to go away in sales. Uh, you know, I think the one prime example I'll just give real quick is uh, I just completed a, 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 another podcast that we'll release in a few weeks uh, with Heather Morgan, who mm-hmm. runs a company called Sales Folk. Right, email, that, ex- email expert, right? Exactly. And it's, it's literally about crafting cold emails. And when, and when you think about the uh, systemization of sales, you think about you know, these mass cold emailing campaigns that are optimized for conversion, and you would think uh, that's, that's, that's not an art, but it, it still really is. A, a big takeaway of Heather's was, at the end of the day, this, these communications have to be about your customer and what they want and how they talk. And so I think you know, we traditionally think about old school salespeople as very artistic, you know, high EQ people, uh, people persons. And I think what we're starting to learn is high conversion. Uh, the data is telling us high conversion, uh, really comes from that understanding of your customer. Uh, so I think, I think the data is almost proving out to some extent that, you know, sales is, is an artist. It's about understanding people. So I think they can both flourish together. Well, it's good to hear. Cause I, I certainly, believe so. I mean, I think that, that I call it sort of the, I use the analogy of like the last mile problem that they had in telecoms. You know, that's, you know, how do I, mm-hmm. it's, it's easy to get the the community, you know, the line to, uh, to the central office, but how do I get it to the home from there, that last mile? And I think people sort of have that same issue with sales is, gosh, we're getting really good at getting to that, that central office point, that point of presence. But then at some point, so a person has to talk to a person and make that happen. And yep. I mean, obviously, there's some products that are self-service completely, but we're talking in the enterprise space. Is it seems like we're getting some people are just sort of ignoring that. I'm seeing, you know, people think they were just be able to sort of ignore that last mile, and I think it's gonna always be there, as you said. I think that's uh, the arts never can go away completely. Yeah, I think I think you can't disintermediate uh, you know the human element to some extent. Um, you know, that doesn't mean you can't use all the data and all the tools to optimize your communications. But if you don't understand what your customer's real pain point is and what's going to make them want to make that purchase, uh, you know, your conversion is going to be bad. Uh, and, and part of that is the human element of, uh, of just understanding your customer. Yeah. All right. Well, you also won a prize for using my favorite word, which is disintermediate. <laughs> Excellent. We'll, we'll send that to you after the show. That's great. So, further with your conversation with Ken, though, I thought it was a great conversation about proof of concepts. So, how often are you finding those selling into enterprise that that it has to be done? 
I mean, is it purely a function of the maturity of the product? Or are you finding that it's more the size of the, or relevant to the, or depend, excuse me, on the, the size of the deal? What, what are sort of the keys that are triggering that? So I think you kind of nailed the two things, to be honest with you, the, the maturity of the product. So if you, have, if you have a product you're selling into a large enterprise, they are, especially if you're an earlier company, they're taking somewhat of a risk on you in that they're going to invest, if you've structured your uh, conversation correctly, they're going to invest time into testing your product. Mm-hmm. They're going to stick their neck out on the line uh, with their colleagues. And they're, they're going to have to use it. I mean, you, you, but what you want to do is, you know, basically find a way to uh, structure this, this test period, this POC, so that they see this value as quickly as possible. Um, as your as your company becomes more mature, you start getting referral clients. You you have mind share with your brand. You know you you have people who can just say it's a security product. A CISO talks to a CISO. One says this product is killing it for us. You got to have it. You're just you may not have to do a POC. Mm-hmm. Um, so the maturity is definitely one thing. As you said, the contract size or the ACV is another important one. Uh, as you mentioned before, lots of uh, freemium or self-service products out there uh, that simply don't offer POCs and their business model couldn't support it um, for cap reasons. But if you're selling, in general, I think it's a good rule of thumb. I mean, if you're selling a, a product that's a several hundred thousand dollar deal, anyone, big companies especially, are going to expect uh, to be able to try it out. Just how it is. So, a question that I encounter a lot with uh, from clients that I work with and companies that you know, listeners to the show and so on is has to do with with charging for proof of concept for trials. And <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, my background when products I sold is even from startup. You know, we always we thought if we couldn't if the customer wouldn't pay for the trial, then they weren't a qualified prospect. Mm-hmm. So, what are you seeing as sort of best practices uh, in the spaces you work in? Sure. Um, I think the first thing you have to look at is what is what is the cost to you in order to do whatever this uh, POC equivalent you're considering is. Um, if it if it costs you a lot of money, uh, if you have to do any sort of custom integrations, if you have to spend a lot of time uh, in sales engineering type of uh, activities, etc., you know it's it's reasonable to expect that. You, know, you you may uh, you may ask for a uh, sort of effectively a mini implementation fee or a paid pilot. Uh, if your deal size is very big, uh, you know if you're selling a again two year deal for several hundred thousand dollars, uh, you, you're not going to spend uh, you know three months with a large client servicing them uh, for nothing. But if your product is you know, a SaaS product that you can simply give somebody access to and your incremental costs are largely just cloud infrastructure, uh, you can, you know, you can maybe afford to try to make it less frictionless. I think it depends on your business and you're right. Figuring out what it is that qualifies that customer is key. Um, what Ken from Gig, you mentioned in our podcast is the key to POCs is, is mutual commitment. Sure. So if, if that commitment is, uh, is payment or if that commitment is time 
or that if that commitment is engagement and giving you data, uh, you just need to figure out what it is that properly qualifies your lead um, or indicates that they value uh, your product and and go with that. Yeah, I mean, I thought Ken's guidelines were good. If people didn't hear that. You know, encourage you to go back and listen to the episode on on next podcast. But you know, in terms of mutual commitment, mutual engagement. But my experience has always been that the way we enforced those commitments and engagements is they put some skin into the game. Mm-hmm. Because you know, otherwise it's not one of their priorities. How do you make it a priority internally that they commit the resources? Is yeah, give us a little money. Yeah, I think you know if you if you just think about a, a company internally, if you have a product that is, um, you know, if you're selling a thirty thousand dollar a year ACV for a SaaS product with not much implementation. Uh, you know, you're not going to go to them and say, okay, why don't you give us 10 grand for a pilot? Because what's the justification for that? Um, you know, and, and qualification bars may not be quite as high. If, if you're going to spend a lot of time with a customer pursuing a two year, $500,000 deal, they're just going to a qualified customer for something, a purchase that big is going to have more, they should be putting more into this and therefore it shouldn't be a big deal for them to, uh, pay, you know, uh, five, five figures for a pilot for three months. So, yeah, well, I think the other factor you include in, and then we'll, we'll move on to another topic, which is cause I agree. I mean, you have to factor those things in is, is really the cost of what you charge for the pilot should relate to the value they're going to receive as opposed to necessarily the cost, right? The price. Mm-hmm. So exactly. if, if it's somebody that's going to get you know fairly strong realized value out of their investment in your your service, then the ability to charge for the pilot, and you want to do that, I think, because again, then you'll you'll devote the resources. They'll devote the resources as well. But no, it's a great conversation. People should go back and listen to that. So uh, another question I guess I had for you is is really from a sort of an investor's perspective is is gosh, there's been this enormous growth in amount of sales technologies, you know, SaaS-based, cloud-based sales technologies over the past few years. It seems like we went from, you know, a, a <laughs> couple dozen on, uh, entries to hundreds, literally hundreds. Um, what do you see going on in those spaces? I mean, do you see that some of this is, uh, you know, overserved markets at this point? I mean, do you see a shakeout coming? And then the second part of the question we'll talk about is, is made some emerging trends you see in those space. Sure. Uh, yeah, there's been, I'd say over the last three or four years, there's been a pretty huge upswing in uh, sales tech or sales automation. Um, you know, I think that obviously you can point to the emergence of CRMs as kind of the uh, impetus to some extent because you, you, know, you give companies a platform to collect data about their customers and their deals and their sales, and uh, and now you you have some data to play with. So now, okay, now we have this data. How do we figure out how to better qualify people? So you see the emergence of predictive analytics companies uh, to better qualify leads or moving through the funnel. Or how do we figure out you know who our best reps are, who our worst reps are? So you see you know tools around BI like Insight Squared. Uh, mm-hmm. that help you there or how do we generate leads in the first place so you see companies like 
you know, lead genius in ranking, uh, emerge, which I think has been great for the industry and, and any modern, especially SaaS seller will tell you, uh, having your, the stack that works for you with probably at least 10 or 15 of these tools is critical. I think you're, you're right though. There is a, it's a problem. The, the various pain points you experience in sales, be it lead gen qualification, um, demos, collateral sharing, webinars, uh, customer success, et cetera, uh, are, are a pain point that a lot of people experience because there are a lot of salespeople in the startup tech ecosystem. Um, therefore, a lot of people try to solve that problem. It's the same reason why we see a lot of startups trying to solve the email problem. Um, that doesn't necessarily correlate with how big the pain point is. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so I think the big question I always, um, try to keep a a finger on the pulse of is, uh, how much budget is actually going to sales automation technology? Um, and I think, I think you do reach a point at which you question, uh, you know, how much more money, uh, basically are we getting diminishing returns on investing in, you know, uh, some of these technologies. I think we're seeing a lot of, a lot of startups that risk being features rather than lasting platform businesses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so I think, uh, to wrap up, I mean, I think you're right. You'll, we'll, we have, and we'll start to see more consolidation, uh, from some of the larger players in the space, be it Salesforce and obvious one to point to, or, uh, inside sales or, uh, five, nine or, some of the CSMs like Gainsight and Tango. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I do think we'll see a good amount of consolidation. And, and I think that, again, the question for me is just uh, how much budget are you really accessing with uh, the pain point you're trying to solve? Well, one of the impressions, and this is interesting to get your perspective on this, is, is I was at the uh, Saster conference in February in, in uh, San Francisco. I don't know if you were there, but... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I went around and talked to all the vendors that were on the display and sort of talking about you know, what they're doing, who they're selling to, and so on. I, at the end of, of the conference, having made my rounds and talked to everybody, it was like, this is sort of interesting. It's like they're all selling to each other. It's like their target market <laughs> is each other, which, right. which seems sort of problematic because you know, the first downturn we have and serious downturn, you know, let's say bubble bursting, if God forbid, is... Yeah, we're just going to be sort of mass casualties. It's so, yeah. so what do you see in terms of how they you know, sort of broaden their focus beyond just purely the, the tech bubble and who they sell to? Because even listening to the presentations there, it seemed like so many of the sales automation companies, their target market was tech, tech, tech. And it's like, that's great. Yeah. But there's all sorts of companies that could utilize this. Yeah, I mean that's something honestly we we think about a lot, which is you know is this a, is this a product that only solves a problem for Silicon Valley, uh, and when you're inside of that bubble, and and the same could apply to is this a product you know we see the same thing in New York both for tech companies and for real estate companies etc. Mm-hmm. You, you know you, to build a big business you have to be applicable to more than just growth stage SaaS companies uh, that are early adopters and that will pay for all this stuff. Um, so, you know, if you look at the, the companies that have built large businesses purely in sales automation so far, uh, they, they provide t- 
tools, like either you kind of seek to be a full stack sales platform, uh, or you, you provide something that can be applicable to more than just technology companies. Um, you know, we have a company in our portfolio called Channelize that looks to optimize indirect sales or channel sales. And, you know, that certainly that's technology, but it also applies to, you know, a ton of other industries, uh, even if you just think sure. about healthcare and pharma, right? I mean, exactly. so, so I think that is a very important consideration. Uh, and, and we definitely do, if you see a, you know, startup and it's, it's, it's very, it's obviously great to see that you have, you know, whatever it is, uh, Atlassian and, you know, Uber and, uh, and whatnot as customers, but we do, we do take it with a little bit of grain of salt because we know these are also some of the most forward thinking companies in the world. And, uh, and to be a truly large business, you gotta, you gotta sell the rest of us. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. I'm glad to hear you say that. We're going to move into the last segment of my show where I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests. And in this first one, it's a hypothetical scenario in that uh, in this scenario, you, Nick, have just been hired as the new sales leader, VP of sales at a company whose sales have stalled out. And uh, CEO, board, really anxious for you to start making an impact, turn things around. So what, what two things could you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? Yeah, um, I think that the first thing is ensuring you really understand the mechanics of your sales funnel. Um, there are, I've seen innumerable companies that are having trouble hitting bookings targets and they look to their sales reps and say, why aren't you hitting targets? And they replace them. And then you've got to ramp up another salesperson mm-hmm. and then you get back to the same problem. And Maybe the problem was you actually don't have enough leads to begin with, or you're not properly qualifying your leads. So if you don't start with the right infrastructure and understand, okay, how are we actually generating leads? Uh, once you get to the you know MQS, QL level, how are we actually qualifying leads? Uh, what actually makes an opportunity and what are we including in pipeline? And then how do we close and the various conversion rates amongst all those it's hard for you to build up from a bookings target to understand how many leads you actually need. So it could be your reps, uh, but it, it also just could be your leads. But if you don't have the data and you don't understand, uh, then, then you don't understand where the weaknesses in your funnel are. So Mm -hmm. I guess that, uh, that's probably the main number one thing that I would do is understand where that weakness in your, your funnel is. Um, I think the second is, you know, you could look at your funnel and maybe just everything looks weak. And at the end of the day, you need to, I think you need to talk with people that are using your product and understand why it is they bought it. Um, you know, we, we invest, uh, our first checks in at the seed stage. Mm-hmm. And that's often when, uh, you know, there are maybe a few customers, but it's, it's critical at that stage to really understand. I mean, you're looking over the next, you know, year or so to understand what your product market fit is. And you've got to go from, Hey, we know we're solving this pain point to this is exactly the person in exactly the type of organization that we're looking for. And here's how they buy it. And here's how we can, 
you know, meet that need scalably with our sales and marketing teams. And so how you do that is talking with as many of your customers as you can. Hopefully you already have a few of those and you have a few champions and spend time with those people. I mean, those, those, those are the people that have invested in your product and see value in it. Uh, if, if those people exist, there's gotta be more of them. So understand what that ideal customer profile is, uh, you know, by talking with the people that you have, um, you know, if you think about it, the cheapest and highest converting lead you can get out there is a referral customer. Right. And you know, the, the, so where does that come from? Again, your existing customers and users. So, uh, you know, trying to get closer to product market fit by talking to existing customers uh, or users would be the second thing I, I would say would be critical. Okay. Great answer. So, um, who's this rapid fire questions. Give me one word answers. You can elaborate if you wish. So who's your sales role model? Sales role model. That's a tough question. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, there are a lot of folks out there who have come up with amazing sales frameworks or uh, written amazing books. Uh, it's kind of hard to just choose one, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I think I can point to uh, one of the most insightful uh, sales leaders that I've had a chance to speak with recently. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, this is, uh, a guy that's very close, uh, with, with our firm. His name is, is Mark Roberge. Sure. Uh, no Mark, no Mark. Well, yeah, he's, uh, you know, I, I, people could be familiar with him from his time at HubSpot. Uh, he's also wrote a book called the sales acceleration formula. Uh, he also does, uh, does a little bit of lecturing at HPS. Um, you know, I think that Mark has been, uh, a great friend of Bowery and, you know, just has a kind of holistic view on the sales process that, um, you know, that I think has, uh, you know, you, you see a lot of sales leaders who specialize in one particular area and just, just excel, uh, but stepping back and understanding how that, uh, how that works is, is another story. Um, I think that Mark has, uh, has gotten there. And then I guess, in addition, um, because I don't have a perfect go-to answer, maybe I'll also <laughs> add one other person. Sure. Um, the, you know, I think the, the classic, uh, you know, seven habits of highly effective people, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm sure that everyone has, has heard of, heard of the book. It's, it's Steve, fairly Stephen old. Covey, it's written right? by Stephen Covey in, uh, I think the late eighties. It's, if you read that book, it is not, it seems like it's cheesy, but honestly, there's a reason why so many people talk about it. It's worth a read. Um, and it, and it changes your view on, uh, it changes your view on how you should deal with other people. And it's, it's almost, it's almost a philosophical book. So I'd say it's, it's a read for everyone, salespeople or not. Oh, I agree. I agree. That was actually sort of preempt my next question, which was one book that every salesperson should read. You would recommend Seven Habits? <laughs> <laughs> yes, seven, seven Habits of Highly Effective, effective. People. Right. Uh, but you bring up an interesting point, though, which is the classics are still so valuable. I mean, I, 
I have clients read Dale Carnegie's book, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a great book. <laughs> it tells you how to deal with people that's still so incredibly relevant today. Absolutely. Um, there's, there's a lot of great stuff out there. And, you know, I think uh, you can't underrate the classics. Um, you know, another I ran across just recently, uh, The Score Takes Care of Itself by mm-hmm. Bill Walsh. Um, that's a great book. Yeah, there's there's no there's no dearth of, of classics out there, so maybe start with those. All right. So last question for you. And this is some people think it's the toughest question. We'll see for you. It's what music's on your playlist these days? Uh, yeah. Geez, I have kind of a broad range of stuff that I like to listen to. Um, I think lately. Lately, I, for work, have uh, have actually been listening to uh, the Revenant soundtrack. It's Ryuichi uh, <laughs> okay. Sakamoto, right? And it's very, very intense. But uh, you know, but kind of, I don't know, gets that serious vibe going on. Uh, I, a couple others I've been kind of listening to on repeat. Uh, I've always been a big fan of. Uh, Gigamesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. I think Sarah Larson's had some pretty good stuff. Kiara. Uh, I, I, I kind of I like electronic stuff. Can't get away from Drake these days. I mean, got to got to give a shout out to Drake. Both literally and figuratively. <laughs> you turn on the TV and there he is. Exactly. All right. Well, good. Well, Nick, thanks for joining me. Tell folks how they can find out more about you and Bowery Capital and your podcast. Thanks so much, Andy. So, yeah, tell people how they can find you. Oh, yes. Uh, you can find me uh, at BoweryCap.com and also NickPoulos.com, which is N-I-C-P-O-U-L-O-S. Okay, great. Let's make sure to listen to Nick's podcast. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And easy way to do that is make this podcast a part of your daily routine, either listening on your commute, in the gym, or as part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Nick Poulos, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com.